If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What did ordinary Germans know about Nazi crimes? It's a question that has been posed many times as the world has reckoned with the aftermath of the Second World War and the Holocaust. But Mary Fulbrook wonders if it's the right one to ask. Instead, what if we turned that question on its head and examined how people reacted to the evidence they did have of what was going on? Rebecca Frank spoke to Mary to discover why the idea of the innocent bystander is a myth. Well, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Your new book is titled Bystander Society, Conformity and Complicity in Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. And in this book, you turn a spotlight on an aspect of German society that has, in your own words, long puzzled you. I wondered if, to start with, you could explain what that puzzle is and what drew you to explore it in greater depth. I've often wondered how millions of people living through the Nazi regime actually came to terms with it and reshaped their lives and how they understood the period they were living through. And I think Germans have been unfairly seen as a homogeneous mass, the Germans, which I strongly disagree with. And I wanted to understand how what I call the muddled middle actually navigated their way through an extremely complex and demanding, a very challenging period of history. Some historians have seen this very much as a perpetrator society, and some contemporaries, post-war particularly, saw all Germans as bad Germans. Other historians have talked about it as a consensus dictatorship, pointing to the high numbers of enthusiastic Nazis, the people who went along with it, the people who adulated Hitler, saw him as the great saviour, the Fuhrer, and so on. And I felt it was all just a lot more complex than that. So that was one of the things propelling me to explore this in more detail. And I have to say, the other thing was quite empirical. I discovered this treasure trove of essays written by people in the winter of 1939-40 in response to an essay competition led by three Harvard professionals to write a brief essay, very autobiographical, entitled My Life in Germany Before and After 1933. And that essay collection is absolutely fascinating. It 
obviously includes people who were in exile, who had emigrated, who had been persecuted on racial grounds or political grounds. But it also includes people who are more ambivalent and in a few cases, people who are actually positive about the Nazi regime. And it struck me that what comes out of those essays is a deeper understanding of the ways in which social relationships between people changed over the years before and after 1933. And it led me to understand that it's actually about changing social and emotional connections between people that helps us to understand how German society changed and how eventually the Holocaust became possible. What would have been absolutely unthinkable in 1932 became the murderous practice in 1942. And you come up with this idea of the bystander society and the bystander at the heart of that. I mean, obviously, this is very a complex and nuanced subject, but how would you define a bystander and why do they matter so much in this particular historical context? I don't look at bystanders as individual discrete persons and then argue about personality characteristics or courage or what features of their own psychology might cause them to act one way or another. What I try and understand is the way in which a society can foster a widespread tendency to remain passive in face of violence. If you think about it, a bystander is somebody who happens to be a witness to or in close proximity to an incident of violence, neither the direct perpetrator nor the direct victim of violence. You happen to witness this, you happen to be passing by or be present at the scene, whether it's a long or a short period of time, but you can only momentarily be an innocent bystander, which is how most people like to portray themselves, not involved, not the perpetrators, because in fact, the longer you are present and remain passive, the more you are in effect condoning the violence. And so I see it as inherently unstable. Bystanders tend to develop movement in one direction or another. Either they start smiling, laughing, benefiting from the violence, in which case they're tending towards complicity with the perpetrator side, or they show disapproval, sympathy with the victims, willingness to report to the authorities, in which case they're tending towards the the rescue and sympathy with the victims side. It's only a moment in which a bystander can be neutral. And what I found interesting about Nazi Germany, and it's the case in many, many other authoritarian and autocratic regimes and dictatorships, is that there are no external authorities. It's the system itself, the state, the political party in power, that is actually instigating the violence, condoning the violence. There is no external authority to whom bystanders could report. So what I try to understand is bystanding as a product of particular political conditions and social relations that will lead people to be more likely to remain passive or more likely to move towards the side of the perpetrators to assist in humiliating victims by laughing at them when they're on the ground 
prostitutes scrubbing the pavements or having their beards cut off are more likely to be willing to benefit as when Jewish shops were smashed up after Kristallnacht in 1938, plundering the goods, taking the stuff that was scattered on the pavements? Or when will they be more likely to actually take the personal risks, which are high in dictatorial conditions, of providing assistance to victims? Under what conditions will more people be likely to go along with violence, to condone it, not to resist it or protest against it? And under what conditions can we expect people to be able to stand up? And that whole idea applies, as you say, to this group, the muddled middle of ordinary Germans, which even using that term ordinary Germans, I realise it has its complexities and its nuances to it. Before 1933, who was that muddled middle and who were they as the Nazis rose into power and, and the war came about? Yeah, I think if you look at German society pre-33, it's extremely varied. It's very different regionally across from East Prussia down to southwestern Germany. It's regionally distinctive. It's socially distinctive. What struck me looking at these autobiographical essays, which form the real basis for the first half of the book until we get into the wartime period when I use other ego documents, diaries, letters and so on. If you look at those essays, what's really striking is that in the early 20th century, among Germans of Jewish descent, some of them practising Jews, some of them converted to Christianity, some of them intermarrying, how much more important class and gender were than any notion of being Jewish or not Jewish. What you see then is rising anti-Semitism during and after the First World War. So that makes a big difference. There's a period in which German Jews, particularly in a big city like Berlin, are highly assimilated and integrated. And then they become the targets of anti-Semitism. And it begins to be more evident. In the 1920s, when the Nazi movement is emerging, it's just one of many ethno-nationalist, folkish, right-wing groups. But it's clearly the anti-Semitic incidents are becoming more problematic, particularly in places like Nuremberg, where Julius Streicher, with his rabid anti-Semitism and his publication, Der Sturmer, was particularly active. But in other areas, it's still not that big an issue for people of Jewish descent. And that radically changes in 1933, because a party is in power which is deeply anti-Semitic. And from the very start, German Jews are feeling the brunt of that. We rightly point to the fact that it was political opponents of Nazism, communists and socialists, who were the first direct targets of Nazi violence in the spring of 33. But Jews were also immediately victimised in March, April 33. And right from the very start, it was not merely Nazi policies like the boycott of Jewish shops in April 33, or the so-called law for the restoration of a professional civil service, which came a week later on the 7th of April 33. But it was also informally that Aryan Germans, non-Jewish Germans, now seeing themselves as Aryans against non-Aryans, all of this in scare quotes, start dropping their friendships with former Jewish friends, start informally excluding 
people of Jewish descent from their social circles. So from the spring of 33 onwards, Jews are being stigmatised and ousted from the new ethno-nationalist Aryan people's community that Hitler wants to construct. And what do you think the kind of motivating factors for that were? Was at that stage, was fear playing a part? Was it indifference? Was it ignorance? What were those factors at that point in time? Over the period as a whole, I think the three most significant factors overall, which I think are the key to explaining passivity overall, are indifference, ignorance and impotence, the three I's. And I argue against the notion that the Germans were anti-Semitic. I think what happens is that indifference can be rooted in deep anti-Semitism, but it can also be rooted in just not caring about people that you don't see much of. So dropping a friendship, you may start to disassociate from former Jewish friends for a whole variety of reasons. Professional adults thinking it's not good for their career to be seen consorting with Jews. Fear of being held to be a a lackey of the Jews, a Judenknecht, being taunted and teased for that. Children being told that by their parents that they mustn't play with Jewish children and coming over to tell the boy who lives across the road, I can't play with you anymore because daddy says not. You know, learning about race at the age of six, seven, eight, being told they mustn't play with Jews. So a whole lot of different reasons why people drop their Jewish friends at the very beginning. I think from 35 onwards, there's compliance with the Nuremberg laws, and that does make a difference. But by then, it's already too late for a lot of people because they've already started on the slippery slope, sliding down into social decline. When you get through to the mid-30s, I think there are other factors coming in. A sense of impotence, I've mentioned, is one of the three key factors. And you may feel, actually, there's no point protesting. In April 33, some non-Jewish Germans did protest against the April boycott. They didn't want to be stopped from going into shops where they enjoyed shopping before. And they were cheeky to the SA thugs standing outside. By 35, they're beginning to feel there's no point. They can't change it. Legalisation of discrimination. They've got to conform. So... With the knowledge of people being brutally beaten up when they were arrested, taken to concentration camps, awareness of the severe penalties that came from refusing to go along with the tide, people just felt that the risks were too great and the likelihood of changing anything. That's the other aspect of impotence. It's the apathy born of the feeling that the Nazis are in power. They're going to stay in power. They're here for longer than we initially thought. In thirty-three, a lot thought it would blow over quickly. But by the mid-1930s, Hitler is, you know, rising high. The 1936 Olympics, he seems supreme. Germany is back to full employment. The economy is booming. People think Hitler is here to stay. What's the point? You know, so the apathy, along with the fear of the penalties, begins to play a role. And I think there's something even wider than that, which is the growth of mutual distrust, a sense of apprehension.
apprehension that you don't quite know whether you'll be informed on to the Gestapo, whether you can trust your neighbour if you step out of line, if you put a foot wrong. So there's a shift in the character of society. And with that shift and with the progressive exclusion of Jews from the economy and the moving them out of where they had been living before, you begin to lose sight of them. And so indifference can grow. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So the trajectory that they followed from conformity to complicity, were there sort of tipping points along the way or was it much more of a slippery slope, as as you say? I think there was definitely a slippery slope of what I call resegregation in the 1930s when German society was just being ripped apart at the seams, when people were being constrained to give up their relationships. One of the characters I trace in the book was engaged to a Jewish fiancé and his Aryan friends were doing everything they could to put pressure on him to try and get him to not marry her, to just split up the relationship, and he didn't want to, and he was being excluded. So there is this long, slow, slippery slope of pressure and rethinking your relationships, and those who really stuck with somebody across the new racial divide had to face a lot of ostracism and their own decision to move to the other side, if you like. But then the the obvious public tipping points, the things that we see very visibly, one of the obvious ones was 1938. First of all, the Anschluss with Austria in the spring of 38, and then Kristallnacht, the burning of synagogues, the smashing up of Jewish businesses and homes in November 38. Several things were important about that moment. A lot of German Jews realised this was it. They couldn't sit it out. They would have to try and emigrate. So 30,000 adult Jewish men were arrested, incarcerated in concentration camps and released if they managed to get emigration papers, visas to go elsewhere in the spring of 39. So those who could manage it 
realised the end was nigh, they had to get out. Many others couldn't for one reason or another. But it was a tipping point for the the Jewish community. That's clear. I think it was also a tipping point for non-Jewish Germans who, for the first time, could not claim ignorance. Germans were witnesses to mass violence. And I think more than that, many of them were participants in it. Many of them took the opportunity to assist in looting, to benefit from the smashing up of properties and department stores and so on. So many Germans actually became more complicit at that point. And yet others, for the first time, explicitly said, I'm ashamed to be German. What I find the most interesting feature of German responses is what I consider to be a kind of ambivalence in which people continue conforming and performing their roles, which are furthering the Nazi system, so functioning to make the system work, while at the same time showing sympathy to victims. So they are actually both complicit and sympathetic at the same time. And I've got some extraordinary examples in the book where, for example, the jailer is putting a former Jewish friend into prison and he's showing sympathy with him while imprisoning him and saying he'll have his wife bring him a hot meal every evening. He's being sympathetic and apologising for having to imprison him. And then the same Jewish victim meets a guard when he's finally in concentration camp in Sachsenhausen, meets a guard who sits down on a log next to him and shows sympathy and said, yeah, I didn't really want to be here and I didn't want to be in uniform, but it was the only option I had. I was facing some hard choices and this was better than the alternatives. So there is this weird interpersonal sympathy being shown at the same time as enacting Nazism. It's a very ambivalent moment for many Germans where they're constrained to go along with their own national community while still feeling a sense of both shame and sympathy for the victims. I think for the Nazis it shows that they can engage in outright brute violence, force, arson and murder without anyone standing up in public to protest. Nobody is willing to risk a public protest. They'll give assistance in private, but not come out and protest in public. So it's a really crucial turning point. Mm, So by that point, the Nazis have created this passive society where violence is known about, or partially known about, but definitely known about by now, and people won't speak up. I would say they've created a deeply divided society in which some people are clearly willing to go beyond what they would previously have felt was possible to do in terms of supporting violence, participating in violence, humiliating victims and benefiting from Nazi violence. That's on the one side. And on the other side, well, it's difficult to give numbers and I I resist giving exact proportions and statistics because I don't think we can know them. But a significant proportion of the population feeling deeply discomforted, very unhappy about it, but feeling 
totally impotent to do anything to change the wider situation and feeling deeply ambivalent about how best they can act in their own personal lives, given the risks of protesting. There are awful incidents you come across in the archival materials, somebody standing up trying to stop a crowd from looting the goods from a Jewish department store and a member of the crowd just turns around and gives this guy a blow over the head and he's dead on the pavement just like that you know and for the Nazis that would not be a criminal offence that would be fine so it's getting to be more polarised at that point and I think there we can see why people realise that they can't do very much and they in a sense, no longer want to know about it. That's why I think indifference and ignorance come in alongside impotence, because people find it easier to turn away, not to see the scenes of the crime, and to sort of say, it's dreadful, but I don't want to know any more about it. I can't do anything about it. It's just awful, but what can I do? And I think that's such a common reaction to violence on that scale. Were there examples of people who actively resisted or examples of individuals kind of wrestling with the dilemma of what to do as these atrocities were unfolding? I think you've got to distinguish between the peacetime years and the wartime years, and it changes, obviously, quite radically once Germany is at war. During the peacetime years, I think a lot of people managed to lead quite a double life. I've got examples of people who are doing absolutely the right Nazi things in public and still inviting Jews into their home, into social events in private, particularly if they were affluent, well-off, lived in a nice house with a large garden, neighbours couldn't see, wouldn't comment. So we're talking about the affluent, the well-to-do. I think if you were in far more constrained circumstances, an ordinary working-class mother whose husband is in concentration camp for having engaged in communist activities and your kids are at school and at serious risk you are going to conform and it's not going to be easy for you to want to say anything you shouldn't say and also be denounced perhaps so it depends very much on your social situation during wartime it's extraordinary it's so difficult because everyone every german family has someone some relative, some friend who's been called up to fight at the front. The fatherland is at war and 17 or 18 million men were called up to fight at the front. Of those fighting at the front, certainly hundreds of thousands were involved in the persecution and mass murder of Jews on the Eastern Front. We can't get exact figures, historians debate the exact figures, but either facilitating or participating in mass murder, and certainly, absolutely certainly, witnessing, knowing about it, writing about it, writing home about it, so that across Germany news was coming in about atrocities on the Eastern Front. What do you do about it? Most people, where you can see evidence of knowledge, record it in their diaries, almost as an isolated so-and-so told me, and then go on back to their daily lives. My wife isn't very well, bitter wind today, we tried to go for a walk, but she went down with flu. You look at the diary of somebody like Ruth Andreas Friedrich in Berlin, and she records very clearly the 
deportations of Berlin Jews. It's so 160,000 Berlin Jews, around 60,000 left at the start of the war, 55,000 deported. In the areas where they lived, like Wilmersdorf, Schoenberg, they are being pulled out of streets, out of houses, in front of everybody's eyes and taken to the train stations or taken to the collection points. This is evident all around. So how do people respond? Most people feel they can't do anything. A few people do engage in extraordinary resistance and rescue efforts. Very few, risky, but extraordinary. And other people have written about the big resistance groups that we know about, the Hans and Sophie Scholls and others like that. But what I found interesting exploring in this book was the people we don't know about so well who were active, for example, in Munich, when they realised that Jews from various places in borderland areas with Poland were being deported into the general government and ghettoized. People in Munich organised a network of sending parcels to these people in ghettos, parcels with clothing, with medications, with foodstuffs, and doing it very cleverly, often putting the medications in separate little parcels and then explaining in a different letter how to put things together to make the relevant medicine that was needed, the drug that was needed, or cutting up fur coats and setting the sleeve separately from the back and so on, and then re-sewing them at the other end so it wouldn't be confiscated along the way. And doing this all over Munich from different post offices so that they wouldn't arouse suspicion. So there were around 100 people that we just don't know the names of most of them. So you get little efforts at providing assistance like that. There are a couple of things that stand out. If you look at resistance and rescue in places like Latvia, for example, very few Latvian Jews were saved through rescue efforts, maybe around 200 or so. And fully a quarter of them, more than 50, were saved through the efforts of one man, Janis Lipka, in Riga, who just seems to have been a good guy, who was horrified with what was going on, the murder of 25,000-plus Jews from the Riga ghetto in two days, and organised ways of getting them out of the ghetto and finding safe houses to put them in. So he seems to have just been a purely humanitarian person. And then in the post-war period, we have the emergence of this idea of the innocent bystander. Could you tell me a little bit about why that idea came about and what it meant? It's a horrible myth that arises already. You can see it in April 1945. The reports when the Allies come in in late 1944, the Western Allies, they're interrogating people who are perfectly willing to say everything they knew about atrocities on the Eastern Front. And oh, yeah, everybody knew about it. And you can see this from diaries and letters, too. By April 45, when Germans are forced to confront what Germany had been engaged in. They're forced to walk around, for example, in Buchenwald and see the piles of corpses and they turn their heads away and they start saying, we never knew anything about it. Davon haben wir nichts gewusst is the refrain. And one of the photographers at the time said it was like a national hymn. Everybody was just repeating. We never knew anything about it. So this myth of ignorance is born in April 45. This 
ignoring before, turning away before, not wanting to know, now becomes the claim we didn't know. And historians have spent a lot of time showing what Germans actually did know to explode that myth of ignorance. So that was one thing. And with the myth of ignorance, you can claim you're an innocent bystander because if you didn't know, you couldn't have done anything about it because you didn't know anything about it. It's totally self-contradictory when you look at people's own accounts of their own lives in denazification reports, for example, they very often combine lots of things. They say, I never knew anything about it, and yet I tried to help a Jewish person. There are so many accounts of I tried to help a Jew, despite not having known anything about it. It's a very complex and often self-contradictory set of claims. But I think one of the real shifts comes with the trials of key Nazis and the trials of major concentration camps, you know, through the 60s to some extent in the 70s, where the notion of who is a perpetrator is narrowed and narrowed and narrowed until the perpetrator is seen as either a frontline killer or somebody at the top who had given the orders which people had to obey. And so that sort of almost means everybody else must have been merely an innocent bystander. And so this whole shift in cultural perceptions of how the Nazi regime was, a a whole new construction of Nazi society is born, which effectively excludes most of the population from having been complicit or in some way more actively involved in perpetration. And obviously this book and and this research focuses on a very specific historical context and a specific country and society. At the time, were there parallels you could find in other similar nations or dictatorships? And since then, are there places where you've seen this kind of bystander society and those conditions emerge? Yeah, in fact, the second half of the book takes us across Europe. I expand the focus from 1938 onwards much more broadly because of the expansion of the Third Reich from 38 onwards. And I look at case studies, particularly in Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, to try and understand the significance of surrounding societies there. And I think it's very clear. In fact, my next research project is precisely about this on a European-wide scale. I think it's very clear that there are differing degrees of impotence if you're subjected to very severe repression by an occupation regime rather than it being your own state your own country as in the case of Germany and the penalties are extremely severe for stepping out of line then obviously you're less likely to stand up against what's going on and also I think what's interesting is the different inter-ethnic relations I talked about the creation of resegregation in Nazi Germany in the 1930s. But in Eastern Europe, mostly, a lot of regional variations, but mostly Latvians, Lithuanians, Poles saw Jews as other, as different already. You didn't have to resegregate in the way you did in Nazi Germany. And so that predisposes a different set of responses to the anti-Semitism that the Germans are importing in a very violent, vicious way. And local nationalists, for example, the Lithuanian activist front, think they can 
ally with Germany, cooperate with them in pursuit of their own nationalist aims. So you get a different configuration wherever you look. I think you have to look specifically at local constellations to see how the configuration of local activism and German invasion and occupation work in relation to the Holocaust. But I think much more broadly, the processes I've tried to outline in the book can be applied virtually anywhere. I mean, I think I tried to get it to a level of theoretical abstraction by the end so that you can see multiple ways in which you can address issues of indifference or ignorance or impotence in different situations, including, unfortunately, very sadly, across the world today. That was Mary Fulbrook. Her book, Bystander Society, Conformity and Complicity in Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, is out now and published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Greenhard. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.